On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast, with me, Scott Radley, filling in, we're going to be talking to a guy who has been one of the champions of the environmental movement, who is now saying, wait a second, climate change is happening, but the alarmism is way over the top. We'll explain that. We're going to talk about the loony. It's going up. Our economy is starting to look a little bit better. And we're going to chat about Kronk. What is Kronk? Stick around and you'll find out. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I want to uh, introduce my first guest by pointing out that I think most people would describe him as being ardently liberal. I mean, as a teenager, he lived in Nicaragua to show solidarity with the Sandinista socialist regime, and he worked to expose poor conditions at factories in Asia, and he's worked to uh, push affirmative action at university, and he's been named one of Time Magazine's Heroes of the Environment and a Green Book Award winner. And I say all this simply to point out this is not someone who is by described, I don't think, ever in his life as a conservative or a right winger. And that's important to, to explain this because... He is right now under heavy fire for many of those who once celebrated him because, well, let me read you the first few lines of an article he just wrote for Forbes. It'll give you a hint. Here it is. On behalf of environmentalists everywhere, I would like to formally apologize for the climate scare we created over the last 30 years. Climate change is happening. It's just not the end of the world. It's not even our most serious environmental problem. His name is Michael Schellenberger. He is author of a new book called Apocalypse Never, and he joins us now from California. Michael, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. I cannot begin to imagine what your inbox looks like these days. <laughs> it's been quite a wild ride, wild few days. Uh, do, do, the, do many of the people who are writing you, and again, I'm assuming that they are, and I am assuming they're a angry, a lot of them, do they feel like you've betrayed them in some way? Well, the amazing thing is I haven't gotten as many of those emails as I thought I would. I mean, mostly I've gotten emails from people saying, you know, thank goodness somebody's finally telling the truth about this. Um, there's just so much misinformation. I mean, basically everything we were told about the environment is wrong. You know, uh, climate change is real. It's not the end of the world. It's not the most serious environmental problem. Um, renewables are worse for the environment than fossil fuels. And nuclear energy is the best. That's basically the opposite of what environmentalists have said over the last 30 years. So including I you. wanted to go ahead, sorry. In, oh, including you. I mean, those have been your positions a lot of the time during those 30 years. That's right. And I've gradually changed my mind after having to confront the evidence and the real world effect of these policies. It just took me a long time to get the courage and, the, and to kind of get old enough to be secure enough to be able to just tell the full truth in one book. So just to be clear, and just to sort of set the baseline here so people understand, you don't deny that climate change is happening. No, not only that, but I am a climate activist. I um, have been working for the last five years to keep nuclear power plants operating, and um, because every time they're shut down, they're replaced by fossil fuels and emissions go up. My main allies have been climate scientists. One of the world's leading climate scientists, the man who invented modern-day climate modeling, called the book the best book ever written on the environment. So this is an environmentalist book. Um, you know, it argues that we do have serious environmental problems and that they've been um, – we've forgotten them or we've sort of – they've been drowned out by the climate apocalypse. And that's wrong because we have some serious environmental problems that we should deal with particularly wildlife and species extinctions and overfishing. Um, there's exaggeration on all of those too, but they're much more serious problems than the climate. Let me read you a couple of things uh, that you mentioned in your article in Forbes that we'll talk a little more about in a second. But here are some of the things that are, I think, well-established or, or a lot of people hold these to be true because they've been told this. And here's what you say. Humans are not causing a sixth mass extinction. That That's 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 flying in the face of the religiosity of the apocalyptic environmentalists, is it not? That we are, uh, 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 Ocasio-Cortez said that we're killing the world, we're going to be dead in 12 years, didn't she? Yeah, I mean, what they've done is they've taken manageable problems and turned them into the end of the world. And I, I explain how that happened and why it happened over the last 30 years. But, you know, so for example, 
we, there are species that we should seek to protect. And one of the things I write a lot about is how we save the whales, how we save the gorillas, how to save nature. But the idea that we're in a mass extinction is false. It's been disproven that we are not, the, the extinction rate is nowhere near what it would need to be to be a mass extinction. There's basically zero risk that we will create a, a mass extinction. And the reason for that is that the trends are mostly going in the right direction, which is that we're using less land to produce food, which is our main environmental impact. And what that means is that opens up more of former farmland to revert to grasslands and forests and be habitat for endangered species. So we need to continue that process. We should be concerned about it. But this construction of these problems into the end of the world is causing real harm. It's causing anxiety and depression, including among adolescents. Part of the reason I wrote the book is because my daughter is 14. And while she's fine, because I explained the science to her, her friends are worried that they're not going to live long enough to have children. And I just think that's, I just think that's unethical. I don't think that scientists or activists or journalists should do that. Yeah, and I mean, I think the number was, there was a recent poll or study that I think it was one in five in United Kingdom were having nightmares about the environment. Children. children, that's what I mean, yes, one, one in five, five children. children. I document in the book that the world's leading environmental journalists at the top news outlets, the world's leading environmental scientists, and the world's leading um, environmental activists have all made outrageously wrong statements claiming that billions will die from climate change, claiming that the earth is dying. This is false. This is completely false. In fact, I criticized the alarmism last year, in part uh, motivated by this concern over the effect on adolescence. And the Internet, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change invited me to become an expert reviewer, which I became. And I think there's, they've, they've contributed to some of the alarmism, but there's a number of people within IPCC know, that knows that there's alarmism. And the, the reality is IPCC does not say that anybody will die from climate change. It does not predict any deaths from climate change. And in fact, there is no reason that anybody should die from climate change. Does, uh, deaths from natural disasters have declined 90%. Over the last 100 years, they've declined 80% over the last 40 years. We should celebrate that fact. Most people don't know those facts, and there is, it is almost inconceivable that those trends would reverse themselves. We're better at better protecting our loved ones from hurricanes, floods, droughts, heat waves, and we're going to get better and better um, as long as we continue to maintain a high-energy society, a prosperous society. You know, the big finding of apocalypse never is that when we take care of our loved ones, we also end up taking care of the natural environment. It's not completely automatic, but when we, when we do take care of people, we also uh, end up being stewards of nature as well. But when we are doing better at protecting people through these natural disasters, aren't the natural disasters getting worse though? We keep hearing that hurricanes are much bigger and more powerful and more frequent now because of global warming and the, the temperature of the oceans and, and brush fires and forest fires and on and on and on. Everything is worse because of the global warming and the climate change. Well, even uh, you can see how easy it is to be misled. So the definition of a disaster, a hurricane is not a disaster unless it kills people or damages property. The disaster is measured by its damage. It's not measured. A hurricane and a tornado and a flood and a drought that never hurt anybody or caused property damage are not defined as disasters. So in terms of deaths, the record is unequivocally, um, it's amazing, it's, we should celebrate it. In terms of property damage, there's no evidence of any increase in disasters because all of the increase of d damage costs is just a function of having more wealth, more buildings, more, more, more property to lose. Um, but we've heard this, Michael, but we've heard this, or, or at least we get told all the time that, I don't even know what the percentage is, 98% of scientists say this is true. That the, Like, whatever the number is, it's some, you know, in the high 90s, we always hear this, that almost well, every they're, scientist... Well, they're, 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 this is what I wanted to do this book, is I wanted to separate, I wanted to get some provide some clarity about what is actually being said. Um, most scientists and I agree that humans are warming the planet. The climate is changing. 
Um, there is uh, also scientific agreement that the death toll from disasters is going down and that there's no evidence that climate change is increasing the cost of disasters. Now, is there also evidence that global warming is making some hurricanes more frequent or intense? Is it making some droughts more frequent? Is it extending the fire season? Yes, there is. But those modest changes to weather events is massively outweighed by the fact that we're better at saving lives through infrastructure and preparedness and that the damage increases, the cost increases, are simply a function of increased wealth. In other words, the, I see them, I'm actually about to write something on this, that I see this, some activist scientists doing this deliberately and suggesting that a hurricane is the same thing as a hurricane disaster. That's how the public thinks about it, because when we think of hurricanes, we think it's disastrous. That's not how the IPCC or any other scientific body defines natural disaster. Yet kids are being taught this in school. They're watching An Inconvenient Truth, Al Gore's movie and others, and they are growing to accept this at fact, meaning whether they're correct or not, this is the orthodoxy that's going to be driving their decisions and their generation's decisions. I mean, one of the things that was so fascinating to discover while doing the research for Apocalypse Never was just how the people who are most alarmist about natural disasters and climate change are the people who are the most alienated from the productive sectors of the economy. They're the most, they, they, most it, it's amazing. Like, well, so what do you mean by that? Well, Al Gore, for his movie, he puts a picture of a hurricane, you know, from space that he puts on there, and that's supposed to be scary because hurricanes are scary. But what, what anybody who's actually lived through hurricanes knows that the difference in your ability to survive a hurricane depends on whether you're prepared and whether you have reinforced infrastructure. In other words, when a hurricane hits Haiti, it can kill thousands of people and cause zero property damage. When the same hurricane, exact same, hits Miami, it can kill zero people and cause billions of dollars of damages. What's the difference? Haiti is dirt poor and Miami is one of the richest cities in the world. So that's how you should, under, how you should understand it. So if the hurricane, let's say the hurricane is 5% more intense, the difference between the hurricane in Haiti and Miami is still going to be the main difference. It's, it's not going to be the 5% increase in intensity of the hurricane. If Similarly, you're right. Flooding, you know, flooding, it's like I, in the book I open in Chapter 1, and I say, if you want to see what the end of the world looks like, then come with me to the Congo. So we go to the Congo mm. in Africa, the biggest central, central African country. They have floods. Um, the difference between the Congo and my home and the Berkeley Hills, I live in a very steep hill, is that we have an elaborate flood control system that nobody even pays attention to anymore, but it's of gutters and culverts that we channel the water away from our homes. They don't have that in the Congo. So if the floods, if there's 5% more precipitation and rain in the Congo, the difference is not that 5%. The difference is that they don't have a flood control system because they're dirt poor, and we do because we're rich. And the kids that are alarmed and apocalyptic about climate change have never been to poor countries. They're completely unaware that we even live in a rich country. Um, most people are unaware that we, they just, we just take this infrastructure for granted. But there's nothing that's going to happen that's going to somehow wipe out our roads, our electrical systems, our flood control systems. That's what keeps us safe from disasters. It's not the marginal difference in size of hurricanes and floods. Michael, if you're right, what this means then is that we are doing, and when you again look at that number of one in five kids having nightmares, we're doing Im incredible emotional damage to kids by teaching them this without the other side of it. Well, yeah, and to be fair, I think one of my criticisms in Apocalypse Never is the ways in which apocalyptic environmentalists have treated people as though we are fragile and treated our society as though we're fragile. And we all know that that's false. We all know that each of us has become stronger in our lives by suffering through some pretty painful <laughs> episodes. Mm -hmm. um, we become better people um, and, when, and we're resilient. So my view, I wrote this book um, uh, for young people. I wrote it, it with stories and really interesting characters. It's, it's, I wrote it as simply as I could so high school students could read it. My view is that when they, when they get the facts right, they're going to feel angry at having been so deeply misled. 
But then my hope is then they will also want to do something to make a difference in the world because there's real environmental issues that we should be concerned about, um, you know, uh, and we need young people involved in them. But this alarmism, which creates anxiety and depression among young people that's giving children nightmares, it's got to stop. It's completely inappropriate and wrong. We only have a minute left here, and I wish we had a lot more time. It's fascinating stuff, but I, I will point out that you wrote this piece that I first came to know about this on Forbes. Uh, that article has now been taken down. Um, does that mean, is your interpretation then, that you're not really supposed to have these views, that these are dangerous views to express? Well, all I'm comfortable saying at this point is that I'm grateful to Forbes for providing me a space to write my columns over the last three years. It inspired Many of them inspired this book. Um, I've mostly been able to write whatever is the truth and follow the facts where I may. I was disappointed that they took this article down. It was consistent with Forbes's editorial standards, and I, uh, I opposed them censoring the piece, but I am going to continue to write for Forbes, and I'm going to continue to write on energy and the environment, and I'm confident that I won't be censored like that again. Michael Schellenberger, uh, you can find his book Apocalypse Never if you are interested in this, want to read more about it. Michael, I really appreciate you taking some time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Uh, as we go to break, I will say this. I, I, I'm pretty sure there are probably some people who are listening right now who are saying, why are you giving someone who denies climate change? Well, first of all, he doesn't. But anyway, a platform. And my answer is exactly what we just talked about at the end. It's important to be able to have these discussions in a rational, sensible, intelligent, fair, non-screaming, non-cancel culture kind of way. He's got interesting things to say, and I absolutely think you should go read his book. Even if you disagree vigorously with every single point in it, it's worth reading just to educate yourself. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Canadian dollar, the loonie, is showing signs of of life, signs of heading in the right direction. That's the first bit of good news. We're going to talk about that in a second. The second bit of good news is that Marvin Ryder from the Negroot School of Business, who is joining us now, because of this call, was able to dump the line on a telemarketer because he says, I have to go on the radio. Marvin, if we can help you get away from a telemarketer, it is a good day. It is always a good day. My ducks are fine, thank you. I don't need any help with my ducks. <laughs> Did you say ducks or ducks? Ducks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> with the T at the I, end of it. Yeah, I, I had someone call one time for one of those services and... I only mention this because of the pronunciation. English was not their first language, and they were asking me if they wanted my ducks cleaned. Yeah. And I was like, well, I, I, you know, it was it was funny. They didn't see the humor in it. Anyway, let's carry on here. Hard word the, in the first place. <laughs> it is. It's like rural. Yeah. Um, don't say rural too fast or too often. No. Um, the loony is showing signs of life, and we're now hearing that within a short period of time, we could not only be at the level it was, at the value it was, but at the start of COVID, but maybe past it. Uh, this sounds like it's really good news. Mm-hmm. My, f- I have talked to you enough times on the radio and I've listened to other people talk to you and I've talked to other economists enough to learn one thing and one thing only. I would not pass your course, but I could answer one question I think properly. And that is anytime you start a question about the Canadian dollar or the Canadian economy, a good place to start is with oil. Mm-hmm. Is that a factor here again? Absolutely. So let's just take you back to the start of the year. January was coming along and the Canadian dollar was flirting, flirting with 77 cents U.S. And then COVID starts to rear its head. It grows in February. And then we had the big mid-March sell-off on the stock market. And the Canadian dollar dropped as low as 68.8 cents U.S. It was just a massacre, a nightmare uh, for people. And at that time, you would have seen articles written, well, about how low can the dollar go And then it wasn't that much longer that you might remember. uh, It was an odd period of time, I think it was at the end of April, where you couldn't even seem to give oil away. The price of oil had fallen below $20 a barrel, and on one unique day you actually had to pay people to take it off your hands. Now, all I'm sharing all this with you because the Canadian currency is highly tied to where oil goes. We are a petrocurrency, and if oil goes down, our currency goes down. If oil comes back, so does our currency. And here's the news. Oil has come back. Oil is flirting with $40 a barrel. That's not where OPEC would like it to be. OPEC would like it to be at 50 maybe even $60 a barrel. But they'll take 40 compared to the 20 that it was. 
And as that has gone, where our dollar at one point was at 68.8 cents, we're now trading at almost, almost 74 cents. So we've regained uh, 60 plus percent, 62, 63 percent of the loss that we had back in March. Uh, to me, 75 cents, somewhere between 75 and 80 cents U.S. is a perfect sweet spot. It allows you to do some international traveling without getting dinged too much on the exchange. On the other side, it keeps our goods relatively inexpensive and allows us to be competitive on international markets. So I kind of like where it is. I don't think anyone listening to us should be salivating for days of parity with the American dollar or 85 cents or 90 cents. It, that's not in the cards. But if we can get oil to be nice and stable and somewhere between 40 and $45 a barrel, yeah, you might see us back to where we were at least in mid-March. And this story about the loony going back to where it was came out before the news from Ottawa today that just moved at 11 o'clock this morning from the Supreme Court that the Supreme Court of Canada says it's not going to be hearing an appeal from uh, First Nations groups in British Columbia over Trans Mountain Pipeline. Now, I, there are so many things going on. I've lost track of what this actually means, whether this means Trans Mountain goes ahead or not. But as we get closer to Trans Mountain potentially happening, would that not also help us in the oil world? Well, it will. So uh, uh, it actually helps Alberta most of all in this world. So Alberta has a problem. It's got all this lovely oil that it can't really use, and so it wants to sell. The problem is the markets who want to buy that oil aren't in Alberta. They are normally offshore. People like the Chinese or the Indians or, or people in Europe who'd like to buy it. How do you get the oil from Alberta to those markets? Well, you've got to get it first to a coast, and the nearest coast for them would be the west coast, and then you've got to put it on a boat. The Trans Mountain Pipeline, and I think a lot of people forget this, there's already a Trans Mountain Pipeline mm -hmm. in existence, but it is full to capacity day after day after day. People have booked a transit for their oil two years, three years in advance. That's how full that pipeline is. So the plan had been to twin it, to put a second pipeline beside it, uh, and that would be a slightly larger pipeline, but that would give you capacity, and more oil could move to those export markets. Um, the fact that the, the Supreme Court won't hear uh, the appeal from the First Nations people suggests that all the work is done now. It means that we've heard you. Hearing you doesn't necessarily mean I agree with you, but I've heard your concerns. We've addressed them the best we can, and the process is fine. Go ahead. Keep going. And Trans Mountain was going, but there were certain specific areas where they might have to do some rerouting that they weren't working on. Now they can keep moving on this hopefully with a completion date of maybe 2022. And I know we want to talk about the dollar and the loony and ec economics, but I, I did want to mention this because it, it goes back to something we talked about last week, not you and I, someone else. And that was these pipelines, the more oil we can produce and export, they brought up the idea of China holding the two Michaels captive. And, you know, if we can now provide something that places like China really want, that gives us more power on the world stage too, to be able to flex our muscles a little bit for something that we could withhold to try and use as a bargaining chip for things like this. It's, it doesn't, it helps with the economy, but it gives us other powers as well on the world stage. It does. Although my feeling is this is much more about trying to help Alberta's economy recover. They, they have been hit with one blast after another over the last few years. And, and I, I really actually feel quite sorry for Alberta. It's not that they don't have good industry, but the industry is all tied to petrochemicals, and that's been a problem. Now, again, I think we have to be clear, Scott, to the people listening to us. I am not saying we shouldn't have a green future. I think we should be embracing alternative energy sources. I think we should be looking to diversify our energy base. But we're not going to do it overnight. We need oil, even if we don't use it to fuel automobiles or planes. We need the plastics that we can make out of petrochemicals that we use, uh, whether we should or not, but we've certainly been using a lot during COVID-19, single-use plastics, because they're sanitary. So, you know, I think there will be a day, and I can look out 25 years and say it's going to be a greener, cleaner planet, but it's not going to be that a day from now, two days from now, and that's why I think we've got to take advantage of this while we can. And that pipeline, the Trans Mountain, and for that matter, even the, um, uh, the, the pipeline that runs through, um, and I've just lost the name, the one that runs through the United States. Uh, uh, the, oh, the X. Um, um, 
Yeah. Uh, now, yeah, you've got me now, too. Okay, you, well, too. well we people know what, know what it is. About, yeah, yeah. We can't put a name to it. You know, a couple of those pipelines at this point are very important for Alberta, and I, I'd like to see it happen uh, for them specifically. Um, back to the other part of the economy. Uh, the head of foreign exchange strategies at BMO Capital Markets, he also pointed to something else besides oil as a reason why our loonie may be starting to look upward a little bit. He is saying that we, our risk appetite is returning. Do you agree with that? Mm-hmm. Well, let me put it to you this way. Uh, you know, we, we were really shaken to our core in March and April. Consumer confidence fell dramatically. You heard lots of people saying, oh, my gosh, the world is over. We'll never be able to go back. And if you look at our data, we seem to be uh, treating COVID spectacularly to the point that we might very well have a COVID-free country, say, by the end of August. This is quite different in the United States. Uh, the United States, the, the COVID is, seems to be running rampant. They don't seem to have any control on it at all. We seem to have got a great handle on it. And as we have gotten a handle on it and have begun the reopening process, safely reopening, guess what's happened? Consumer confidence has risen. And when, con- when consumers have more confidence, they, then they are more willing to take on risk. Whether that risk is buying a home or upgrading a home, buying a car, having a child, getting married, you do those things when you have certainty or more certainty about your future. You don't do those things when you are concerned. So there's a lot of good things happening. And part of it is living next door to a country that's not got things under control. I know a lot of Canadians, even though we like to vacation in the United States, uh, look at the prospect of the border reopening on July 21st and say, no, thank you. Keep that border closed. Keep that COVID south. Don't let those Americans up here. I also think it's interesting this week, the EU, talking again about reopening, said uh, we're prepared to accept travelers from Canada so you could fly to Rome or Paris or London. We're happy to have Canadians, but you Americans, no, sorry, we're not opening our doors to you folks. Again, a little chance for us to shine on the world stage. Yeah, I I will say that I'm a little surprised. I know that we live in a world that has a rather short attention span these days, but I'm amazed that we could go from pretty confident to losing, as you described, all of our confidence in our spending and everything else to being back in fewer than four months. I mean, it seems like a remarkable roller coaster ride. It is, uh, but that's, that's also because we're on a roller coaster that we didn't know how it was designed. And even now I'm saying all these things to you, I have to put a big asterisk there and say, this is all predicated on no second wave, that we really are beating this thing into the ground, that the forest fire is turning into a brush fire and even that starting to see pockets where it's going out. Uh, If we don't get it it extinguished, then all deals are off, all bets are off. And I know there's a lot of people who talk about a second or third wave, perhaps in the fall, perhaps uh, next spring. That doesn't happen spontaneously. COVID won't just suddenly reappear. It's got to be reintroduced into the marketplace. So if we manage it correctly, stamp it out here, and then uh, manage our borders very, very carefully, we might be able to avoid that second wave. Uh, But, you know, I I don't know what the future holds. So at this moment, things are looking pretty bright. At this moment, confidence is coming back as we get closer to our old normal. But it can change on a heartbeat. You've mentioned a couple times the borders, and I think it's obviously really important, um, not only for COVID, but I mean, we do, much of our economy is dependent upon exports, particularly to the U.S. Um, Is this having any effect on us right now? Or is, because we can be as confident as we want, but if we can't easily move things or as easily move things back and forth, should that not put some kind of damper on us or not? Yeah. So the good news is um, the border is closed for casual travel, but it's not closed for moving goods back and forth. And one good dominates the landscape, and that's automobiles. So whether it's making automobiles or making the parts for automobiles or the components, what have you, that is continuing. And that really is a lifeblood of the Canadian and American economy, vehicle production. And that's continued just fine. The thing that has taken the big hit is travel. It's been estimated that globally, worldwide travel is going to lose $3.3 trillion in activity this year. Uh, and and uh, that's not coming back anytime soon. So those people like Banff or maybe in Niagara Falls, where you're looking for Americans to cross the border, spend their money at casinos or at tourist attractions, go shopping here, 
that's not coming back as quickly. That's the dark spot. But otherwise, the essential uh, buying and selling of steel, of aluminum, of car parts, of, of finished goods, uh, that's going along just fine, thank you. So um, we won't be 100% by Christmas time. We'll still be have a reduction from all this. And, and I don't know how long it's going to take for America to get back. But at this moment, the stuff we really need to have happen is happening. The, the nice-to-have stuff is not there yet. Yesterday was the beginning of the new free trade agreement that it got launched um, with the Mexico and the States. How is this going to affect things? Well, in a strange way, if you woke up today and said, gosh, the world doesn't seem any different, well, it really isn't. The, the new NAFTA, USMCA, is not a substantially different agreement than the old NAFTA. That was signed in 1994, and after 26 years, it really needed a refresh and updating. But it wasn't uh, a dramatically different document in many ways. There are a couple of areas that are dramatically different. For instance, in 1994, there was no e-commerce, so all of the provisions around that have changed. Uh, if you buy things on the web and you buy some things from American companies, you could bring them into Canada, $25 or less without duty, but if it was more than $25, every now and again, uh, Canada Customs would slap something on there and you'd have to pay it. That limit has gone up to $150, so that should make e-commerce transactions more flexible. Another change, of course, is the dairy industry. Uh, we've now given the Americans uh, access to 3.6% of the milk market and, and dairy product market. Um, that's up uh, under Trans-Pacific Partnership. It was going to be 3.25%. And I know there are lots of people who, who don't like that in the managed dairy industry. But it, given that Mr. Trump had wanted 50% access to the market, that we got away with 3.6, I think of that as a great victory. In fact, that the agreement has, has come through more or less intact from what it was before. For a man who ran on ripping it up and taking it back and putting America first, we all came through this pretty well. So don't expect milk and honey from this agreement. Expect the past to continue going forward, but maybe with a little more certainty and, and hopefully uh, without any more surprise tariffs. Although at this point, even as we're talking, Mr. Trump has suggested he might once again slap some tariffs on Canadian aluminum that we're selling too much of it into the American market. And he might do this, what he calls a Chapter 322 tariff, which isn't covered by NAFTA. It's a provision for presidents during extreme times of war, what have you. Um, it's a strange thing. No other president's ever done this. Hopefully no other president will either. I want to ask you just, we've got a few more minutes here. I want to ask you for a little history lesson, a short history lesson anyway, because, uh, and again, it goes to the free trade deal that, uh, uh, that we're just talking about. I remember when, I don't even know, I was in university or high school or whenever, when Brian Mulroney launched his move for free trade and there were howls about it. Every, I mean, there were people screaming that this was going to end the economy and on and on and on. Now, I think almost everybody seems to think that deals like this are essential was Mulroney ahead of his time or have the conditions changed so much that it's no comparison to where we are and it's a, just a different world? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, ahead of his time, probably yes. Uh, what he was tapping into was the same wave of economic integration that gave rise to the European Union, that these customs borders between countries were actually harming trade more than helping trade. And if we could just be a little less territorial, we might all benefit from this. Now, in fairness, there are lots of people who've looked back over the last 26 years and say, well, we did lose things. And in Hamilton specifically, there used to be a Lifesavers plant here. There used to be a Levi Strauss factory here. There used to be a Procter & Gamble factory here. And once we integrated the North America, uh, companies said, well, I don't have to keep a little plant here and a little plant there and a little plant someplace else. I'm going to consolidate my operations in one big plant maybe in Cincinnati or maybe in Mexico. And so there were some jobs that were lost. And we, we people like me who teach in a business school, like to believe that many of them were low-value-added jobs, not necessarily low-paying jobs, but low-value-added jobs, and that what we've got today is an economy based on more technology, more value-added jobs. There are people out there, though, listening to us who were certainly hurt by this. And, and Hamilton has a very low unemployment rate, in part because it also has a very high retirement rate. There's a lot of men and women in their 50s, uh, maybe late 40s, certainly some early 60s, who would like to be working in the jobs they used to have, but they were bought out, the company was downsized, 
and at that age it was too late to be retrained for something else. They were casualties of, of the North American Free Trade Agreement. We, nice again people in business schools, think that the new economy is stronger for it. We're less reliant on low-value-added jobs, but it, it was not an easy or smooth transition. And, and even now, what we're talking about is extending free trade. As you know, we signed a free trade agreement with Europe. Uh, we're, we also have one with Korea, of all places. There is talk, again, of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and uh, resurrecting that as it goes forward. Um, even talk now of a, an entire uh, um, North and South American free trade agreement between the different countries, because people see the advantages to getting rid of these barriers and allowing a freer flow of goods. But it does take a while, and, and there certainly are people listening to us who are totally against globalization and this movement. It's, it's hard to know. On an individual level, some people will be hurt, no doubt about it, but taken together as a group, our economy is stronger for it. Marvin Ryder, always love having you on. Thanks for taking the time today. Glad to be with you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Want to um, give you a little bit of a history lesson here for just a moment. Uh, and uh, this is not me flexing my history muscles. I only learned about this recently and found it fascinating. Coca-Cola, that was a Coke commercial you were listening. Of course, you know that. Uh, Coca-Cola was created by a pharmacist in Atlanta named Dr. John Pemberton, who, when he made Coca-Cola in the first place, cited its medicinal qualities. Maybe it had something to do with it, it had trace amounts of cocaine in it at the time, apparently. Anyway, uh, Pepsi, also created by a pharmacist, a guy named Caleb Bradham, who pointed to the drink's medicinal qualities. Pepsi, the name Pepsi, is taken from pepsin, which is a digestive enzyme that was found in his beverage. Dr. Pepper, sold as a health tonic initially by its inventor, who was... Uh-huh. A pharmacist named Charles Alderton. Getting the pattern here? Verner's, invented by a pharmacist named James Verner. Hires Root Beer, pharmacist Charles E. Hires. Canada Dry, invented by a pharmacist John J. McLaughlin, which brings us to a thing called Kronk. Now, what in the world is Kronk? What are we talking about? Not Gronk, not the football player, not the New England Patriot player. Kronk. Kronk is the lost beverage of Dr. Kronk. Of course he was a doctor. He's a, he made a pop. It's a beverage. This lost beverage has finally been found, the recipe at least, and it's about to make its return after something like 150 years of not being around. The man who made the discovery in the first place, his name is Paul Ferry, Dr. Paul Ferry, of course, because any drink has to have a doctor involved, apparently. Uh, he joins us now. Dr. Ferry, thanks for doing this today. Happy, happy to be here. Amazing song, by the way. Oh, it is. Uh, yes, it, it, everybody knows that one, no matter how old you are. Um, until a few weeks ago, had you ever heard of Kronk? I had I had definitely not heard of Kronk until, I think, last Sunday. Okay, so you were not the Indiana Jones who's seeking out the Holy Grail of drinks or something and came upon it. You just, it, this was something you stumbled on? Yeah, I was, I was just, it was a rainy afternoon, and uh, sometimes it's uh, enjoyable to look through old newspapers just for fun, and... Honestly, it was in an early edition of the Calgary Herald from 1883. I saw the the, the almost infamous now ads advertising Kronk. And and I mean, what what did they say? Did you even know that Kronk was a drink? No. Yes. Yeah, so, so like literally the the local news section on the front page it says local news, and then it just says the word Kronk. So like already you're hooked because <laughs> you see it and you think I have to know what it, it's about. So then there's a story. I think it's about wheat or something, and then it says Kronk is good, and then a story about a mechanic, and then it says buy Kronk, and then another story, and then Kronk is the drink, and another story, and drink Kronk, another story, Doctor Kronk. So like obviously like you see this and you think okay I have to I have to share. Now, for the record, I've just pulled up the the old uh, newspaper clipping. And yes, I, I mean, imagine for a second that people are looking here at the Hamilton Spectator and on the front page as part of the, what looks like as part of the news, there is just something at the first line that says crunk. And that, that's, that's what it is. And then it goes on to the news story. Um, I, I guess their ads were done a little bit differently then. Um, you, you said that sometimes it's fun to do this. Do you peruse old papers looking for weird stuff often? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not exactly 100% sure how I stumbled upon this hobby. I mean, I actually, I grew up in, in Hamilton, and I spent some uh, some lovely Saturdays at the, the downtown library. And, um, yeah, it's just uh, it's just an interesting way to peek in on the lives of people in the past. 
what is when when you have gone through and found some interesting things um had you ever come across any other weird things like cronk any others that you sort of looked at and went what in the world is that yeah i mean i mean one of my favorites was a, a recipe from the 1950s and it was called a prune and cream cheese donut salad uh, Sal- so what you have to do you, you, a quarter pound cream cheese four prunes four donuts four lettuce leaves cut them in quarters it serves four Naturally, who who has not had a salad with donut before? Well, I I, I love the addition of the lettuce leaves <laughs> if they want to make it like a little bit of a health food. <laughs> well, exactly, yeah, yeah. You know what? If you're Tim Hortons has not yet brought in their lettuce donuts, but when they want to go healthy, yes, there you go. Uh, okay, so you don't know what Kronk was. You did. You had figured out from the series of ads that it probably was a drink. So now you've got a little bit of information. What do you do with that? Well, yeah. So 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 I basically just tweeted out these ads. Um, just to share the fun with uh, with others, and honestly, within maybe an hour, um, a couple of dozen people was, were starting to contribute their uh, research into what on earth Crunk was. Which which brought you what? What did you learn in that quick time about what Crunk actually was? Well, it, it seemed to be um, basically they, they called it Doctor Crunk's celebrated root beer. So it's it basically. Uh, it seemed to be some sort of root beer. There was actually a lot of debate as to whether it was alcoholic or not. There's a court case in Ontario from the 1880s where people were arguing in court about whether or not Kronk uh, counted as an intoxicant or not. Um, <laughs> and the, and then, like honestly, just like a lot of things, the old bottles. People seem to like to collect the old bottles of Kronk, um, which are which are pretty cool. But um, I think it was the maybe the next night, Tuesday night, when. Uh, uh, when a friend of mine, Jennifer Davis, found um, found the recipe for Kronk's. How? I mean, it's been gone for 150 years. How can someone turn around and find a recipe that quickly? Well, I mean, I think the, the miracle of the internet uh, helped out there. Yes. Uh, it was a scanned book that someone had uploaded called, ah. called the, the Handbook of Practical Receipts or Useful Hints in Everyday Life by an American Gentleman or Lady. And it had the, <laughs> it had the recipe for Dr. Kronk's sarsaparilla beer. And so do we know, first, okay, before we get into what the recipe is, uh, do we have any idea, uh, there's not a person alive who would have tasted this, I'm assuming, um, if we're talking mid-1800s, nobody's alive, so do we have any idea what it would taste like? No, I mean, it, it seemed like a pretty popular drink, at least if you like, you look at some of the other newspapers from around the same time, but exactly what it tasted like, other than maybe kind of guessing from some of the descriptions, like it was kind of gingery and maybe root beery. hard to say exactly, but uh, nobody really knows what it tastes like, which is, I think, a lot of the fun. Okay, and we don't know if it's alcohol or if it's a pop. Um, so what is in it? What is in the recipe? What are some of the things? Okay, so we, we got some, some sassafras, which is apparently uh, currently illegal. Um, so they had to, they're gonna <laughs> use a, there's an extract that you can use, apparently, if you want to use sassafras. There's sarsaparilla. You got uh, two pounds of hops, throw in a pound of chamomile blows, which I think are just the leaves, um, a pound of cinnamon, five pounds of ginger, a pint of sarsaparilla extract. Apparently you boil them together, throw in some green tea, add uh, 10 gallons of molasses, 100 gallons of water, and you got yourself uh, quite a lot of crunk. You know? Yeah, and, and I mean, I'm not sure if that combination, now some of these things, I don't even know what they would taste like by themselves. I'm, I'm not sure I've ever consumed sarsaparilla. Um, probably not. Uh, there's a few other things there that I'm not sure. So uh, I'm not sure if this would taste delicious or if it sounds like it tastes horrible. Yeah. So, so sassafras and sarsaparilla are sort of, and if you put in some vanilla, that's basically root beer. Uh, so so you've got that sort of angle, then cinnamon and ginger are not really root beery flavors. So, So pop in that, imagine like a kombucha green tea type thing, maybe together, all together for... So root beer and kombucha blended together yeah, into some my, sort of... That's my guess, yeah. Well, uh, so according... Uh, where this thing really gets interesting now is that... So you find this. It doesn't take very long. You put it out on social media. It immediately gets all kinds of people who are either drink aficionados or they just love digging for old stuff and, and solving riddles. Uh, but days after you do this, a Calgary microbrewer says he's going to whip some together and distribute it. Yeah, yeah. So Tuesday afternoon, I guess, is when the recipe was uncovered. Obviously, I share this wonderful news. And then by Wednesday morning, uh, Cold Garden, which is a brewery in uh, central Calgary, uh, <laughs> stepped up to the plate, uh, even honestly just by themselves, and, and decided they're going to spin up a, at least one vat of cronk. 
But this has led to, I don't want to use the word hysteria, that's a little much, but I mean, there's all of a sudden this ton of interest in people, not just in your area, not just in Calgary, but all over the country are now saying, hey, how do I get myself some cronk? Yes. So I've heard mostly sort of through the grapevine that they've had to field dozens or hundreds of phone calls demanding uh, when is crunk going to be available? How can I get my hands on on some of this crunk? And it's not just been in, in Calgary. It seems to be around at least Canada and parts of the U.S. even. Yeah. And the mayor Edmonton jumped into this thing somehow and said, yeah, you want to have help with distribution. We'll figure out how to get it at least up in our area. I mean, you're, you're getting some heavy hitters who all of a sudden want to get in on Kronk, even though no one has really an idea whether this is going to taste like a angel dancing on your tongue or an angel doing something else on your tongue. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean it's great to have the support of, of people like like the mayor of Edmonton, a senator from, from Alberta as well. Paula Simon seems pretty, pretty keen, so... Uh... It's, uh, it's definitely people. People are are dreaming of uh, the day they can have some crunk. Will you be getting some? Will you be trying it? Absolutely. As soon as I know it's available, I will probably won't camp out, but I'll, but I'll definitely arrive <laughs> on opening. For, uh, what if for it? What if it does taste terrible? Does that take anything away from the story? If you taste it, and you go, "Ugh, that's that's awful." Does that does I, that remove I, any of the excitement? I, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, for, for me, I think whether or not the beverage tastes great or awful is going to be going to be amazing. I think the only disappointing thing for me would be if it was like a five out of ten. I think great or awful are equally uh, acceptable to me. Well, may, I mean, maybe if it really tastes so horrendous, that would at least uncover the mystery of why we've never heard of Kronk before, because he made it, and then everyone said this is disgusting, and that's why the business died. Yeah, I mean, I think we could check off uh, problem solved there for uh, where did Kronk go. Now, the, the flip side is, if it's wonderfully delicious, you are now the guy who starts a phenomenon and creates a whole new business for somebody, and it's it's all over the world, and it's all because of you. Yeah, no, I'm, I mean, if you had asked me two weeks ago to guess um, what, what what my life's work would be, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily have, have guessed a crunk advocate, but you know, hey. <laughs> I, I mean, the big one of the big parts about this that I think is great is it could have been named almost anything. The drink could have been called almost anything. The fact that it was Kronk, it just has that great sound that makes you have to look and figure out what it is. If it was, you know, Dr. Bobby's fizzing soda, nobody cares. Nobody, you probably don't even catch that. It doesn't even catch your eye the second time, I'm guessing. It's, just, it's the perfect name for something like this. No, no, I mean, I mean, absolutely. If it was just almost any other name, it wouldn't stick in the mind. I mean, all this demand is before people even know what on earth it exactly it is. Is it a beer? Is it not a beer? Uh, or what it tastes like. So it's really the power of uh, Crunk plus the, the, the ads that they put in the, the Herald that time. Now, I have been reading about this. So the, the microbrewery that is trying to put this together, and I don't know that you can really help them here. I mean, they're the experts here, but there are enough... Ver variances in the ingredients that even when they make it, it's going to be really hard to know if it was similar or exactly the same as the cronk that was out once upon a time, because even hops, I think there was, there's nine different varieties or something, and it doesn't specify what kind. So it, even when you finally taste this, it may or may not be authentic. Yeah. I mean, my favorite, my, my favorite little sentence in the recipe just says, scent to suit to your taste which is really very vague, but uh, it seemed like at least even at the time, the authentic crunk was inconsistent from, from town to town. So uh, we're sort of recreating that a little bit. People also found bottles, I, I heard, that they, they in their garage or attic or something, and people were suddenly appearing with cronk bottles. And again, it, it makes me wonder if they've had this stuff all along. Either they've known about it, or they're the most amazing sleuths to have gone into the attic or the far barn and found this immediately. Uh, if they've known this all along, I just wonder why no one else has ever raised it before. Yeah, it seems like most of the kind of living memory of Kronk is actually just in the bottle. And one of the things I, I had no idea before a couple of weeks ago was that there's a big community of sort of historic bottle collectors. And, and if anyone has remembered Kronk, it seems to be these, uh, these bottle collectors around North America. Yeah, I wonder if any of them still have any of the stuff in it. Not that you would want yeah. to taste it. It would kill you, yeah. but I mean, it would uh, it would be <laughs> fascinating. And I mean, I'm looking at a few of the pictures and, and the amazing thing is even the bottles. Now, I understand we're in 2020 now and we have mass production and everything else. And so if you buy a Coke or a Pepsi, you expect it to look the same no matter where you get it. But even the photos that come with this, it seems like Dr. Kronk's bottles came in whatever bottles he could almost get his hands on. And they were all different colors and shapes and sizes and everything else. 
Yeah, I, I don't think they spend a lot, lot of time on uh, branding and consistent branding from, <laughs> no. from even city to city. So clearly not. Uh, any of your other things that you found when looking through the papers ever lead to anything like this? No, I mean, I know nobody ever took the donut salad thing and ran with it, but um, anything else that's ever led to any kind of investigation like this? Well, well there, there was a interesting one about a confusing referendum in. Saskatoon about some Sunday shopping bylaws where they asked some questions that actually contradicted each other and the way that the voters um, voted it actually gave city council a contradictory instructions so uh, there was a bit of fun we had to kind of figure out what on earth the, 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 the voters of Saskatoon were trying to do that time. It is uh, it is a great story I hope that uh, sometime this summer once the cronk gets brewed or distilled or i don't even know what the right thing yeah. you would do with cronk uh when made uh that it'll make its way out here so we can try it as well because it's a it's a fun story that uh, uh a little bit of history coming back to life you, you usually can't bring history back to life here you go here's an opportunity to bring some history back to life for better or for worse i guess we're going to find out <laughs> well i mean if anything i hope it's the summer of cronk so. the summer of cronk yeah well you know what if we're going to have a summer of something uh, and it's not the summer of love. I suppose the summer of Kronk is second best. Uh, Dr. Paul Ferry, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, happy to do it. Yeah, thanks. It's a, that is a fun story because look, there, there are so many, there's so many serious, heavy things going on right now. And so to go into the old papers, and by the way, it's not just because I work at a newspaper as well, but to go and look through some of the stuff you find in old papers is truly fascinating for a couple of reasons. One, because it's history, but also back a hundred years ago, they did stuff way different than we do it now. And as I say, if you look, if you, if you go and find it, and if you type in Paul Ferry, F-A-I-R-I-E, go and look at his Twitter account, uh, you'll find the pictures. This thing, it's, it's in a story. The advertising is part of the story. You're reading a story about whatever. And at the top, the first word is Kronk. And then there's a line and then the story starts. And then it says, drink Kronk underneath way different, but I, weird, wonderful things that people did differently and that people reported on and that, that stories that got covered and everything else. But bringing back an antiquated soda, but I mean, it's a totally benign, totally harmless, we hope, we hope. Uh, the, the sarsaparilla or sassafras or whatever it is, as he said, is, uh, is illegal. So they're looking for some version of it that's not illegal another challenge in this one. It's amazing how in the old days when they made soda pop pop for us, um, this was not stuff that was just, you know, for kids, like the fact that Coca-Cola initially had cocaine elements in it. Don't know how much, but, uh, yeah, different world, different world anyway, but this, this is going to be, uh, this is going to be interesting. Although listening to the discussion of the ingredients, Methinks you might want to have the vomit bag nearby, but we'll find out. Maybe, maybe they've stumbled onto the great new thing and everyone's going to be talking Kronk. The summer of Kronk, as he says. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.